Endless Hustle is presented by Eat Clean Bro, a convenient solution to bring you the highest quality chef-prepared meals delivered right to your door. Eat Clean Bro is the contract-free solution for your meal prep needs. Made with all-natural ingredients and next-day delivery, every meal feels like you have someone cooking for you right at home. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Welcome back, Endless Hustlers. Episode 88 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. 88 years old. We're old, but we're healthy. We're kicking. We're running every day. We're in great shape. No heart issues. We're young at heart. I love it. And we're going to keep rolling with the incredible guests, especially today. I am, as always, your host, Arthur Cade. Got a triple header ahead. Fantastic guest. We've got veteran actor, fan favorite, David Arquette. He's got a brand new movie called Domino Battle of the Bones in theaters, VOD, digital. It's pretty much everywhere. Great movie directed by one of my favorite all-time basketball players, Baron Davis, directed, produced it. And David's one of the stars. They got Snoop Dogg in there. They got an incredible cast. Really cool look at that underground domino world. Great movie. Enjoyed it. It's a ton of fun. A lot of my favorites. And David was fantastic in this interview. Talked all about his career, his love of wrestling, almost dying. We covered it all. David's a personality. We had a lot of fun with him. Next up, we've got Angela Serafian. If you don't know that name, you'll know her as Clementine on Westworld, one of my favorite shows of the last decade. I literally spent God knows how many minutes of the interview geeking out over Westworld with her, but she's got a brand new movie that's making the festival rounds, really terrific movie called King Knight. We're chatting all about that, why she got involved with it. But of course, just talking to her about Westworld and the reaction and how Clementine has changed her life and getting recognized in coffee shops, you guys are going to love it. Angela is a great, great actress, having a ton of success. Her new movie, King Knight's fantastic. And of course, Westworld's going to be back for season four. And uh, I love geeking out with her all about it. So Angela Serafian is number two. And number three is a man who has become, I feel like the television and radio face and everything else he's doing for the soccer community. Soccer, although the most popular sport on the planet, doesn't have the same foothold in America as, say, the NBA or the NFL or NHL do. But Roger Bennett, co-host of Men in Blazers, has helped bring soccer to the forefront, A, with Men in Blazers. And now he's got the number one New York Times bestselling book that he just released, Reborn in the USA, talking all about his life. It's part memoir part reflection on England and growing up there, part how America helped grow him up once he immigrated. Fantastic interview with Roger. If you know anything about the English, they've got the best dry sense of humor out there. And I've got a pretty dry sense of humor myself. So Roger and I were clicking, clicking like cogs in a wheel, man. We loved each other. I loved having Roger on the show. We were laughing hysterically, joke after joke after joke. So I'm going to stop boring you. Let's get right into it. First guest, David Arquette, new movie, Domino Battle of the Bones. Check it out. Here he is, David Arquette. All right, it's going to be a fun day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by the one and only David Arquette, brand new movie, 
Domino Battle of the Bones. Congratulations, man. And rocking arguably the greatest shirt I've ever seen in the history of mankind. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's a silly old, I don't know. It's just fun. I've been wearing more clothes that have been like, I don't know if just putting them on kind of makes you happy just to try to combat this crazy time. So let's start with the movie. You get to work with Baron Davis, obviously Baron, NBA icon, one of the greatest dunks of all time. He's now directing, producing, doing it all. How'd he do on his first shot? Oh, he did great. He did great. Baron's a really funny guy. He's just got a great sense of humor. He loves films. He loves telling stories. So he uh, he got this script together with some friends of his and, and co-directed it with some friends of his. And uh, they were uh, they were all great. It was really a great experience. And, and just, I don't know, a lot of laughs. <laughs> Little independent films are kind of tough sometimes. So you just kind of, you know, it was just a few days of just kind of laughing and being silly. A lot of uh, improvisation, too. Here's the number one question. Did you get to work with Snoop Dogg? And what is that like? Because Snoop is, I've actually hung out with him. I've interviewed him, but there's no one like Snoop. There's no one like Snoop. I actually didn't get to work with him on this project. I've met him before several times. And and uh, we were playing this uh, uh, direct TV, like, flag football game one time and he was just so great he's a great football player he's like catching all these things and i'm dropping stuff and like getting knocked over by joey magdalella whatever his name is <laughs> like just and then snoop comes up to me he goes come on arquette get in the game <laughs> it was just the best moment of my life Oh my God. I see. I would have been like, Snoop, where do we go smoke? What, where, where do we just disappear to? Cause I got to try some of the crazy oh, shit you get to do. No, no, no. If you've been in this town long enough as I have, even being a wild child, like I am, you know, better than to even, <laughs> you know, that's other level stuff. What, what Snoop is doing. So I'd be very careful. Yeah, Snoop, Snoop and, and, uh, and, you know, Cypress Hill. Be real. Even those two guys, you gotta be careful. <laughs> Wait, I'm getting it sounds like you've tried this. I mean, is it is it is is it like what happens during a Snoop Snoking experience? You go to a different parallel universe? <laughs> I'm sure you do. I've never with Snoop, but uh I did like be real's hot box where you like smoke in the car and yeah, I learned new things about <laughs> myself and just not not going there. I you have to be careful. You know, one thing really serious about marijuana smoke, nobody really talks about it, but it can induce psychosis. If you have it in your history, you have to be really careful. Like people, for the most part, it's a very uh, safe sort of thing. But uh, in, in, in few cases, it can be severely uh, effective. So everyone should be careful about that. I don't know why it went on a, a PSA, but I don't know. <laughs> Just like I said, like once you've been in this business long enough, in this world long enough, you learn a lot of lessons and I don't know. So I want to turn back the clock. You get to yes. Hollywood. <laughs> obviously, obviously, you and your family, so many successful stories to come out of it. I feel like Scream was your breakout. I feel like that was the moment where people knew who David Arquette was. Probably casting agents gave a shit. Is that, was that the moment for you where you broke through? Well, Hollywood's a business, so yeah, that was the first film that made like rocker, you know, box office record kind of numbers. So, 
that'll get you on the map. I mean, when you're just in a film like that, it makes it easier to be recognized. It makes easier for people to sort of know who you are and, and it does open doors. So yeah, that was a big breakout moment for me. I really credit it to Wes Craven. He's was such a mentor of mine and I had such an incredible uh, friendship with him. I feel very blessed that I got to work with him so many times. So when that happens, David, what is that like for an actor? Because I had Daniel Radcliffe on the show a couple of weeks ago, and obviously he took the opposite path. He ends up becoming arguably the most famous person on the planet, but he's like all of six. And then he's got to recreate himself after Harry Potter. But when you come to Hollywood at a more advanced stage, not six, and you are trying to break through, and then you finally have that moment where people recognize you and, and things are happening. What is that moment like for an actor? Um, it's exciting. I mean, there's a lot of like weird stuff you have to deal with on the road to getting there. You know, I got my first job when I was 17. So I was still like growing. I mean, up until I'm about to turn 50 and I still feel like I'm sort of like trying to figure out this world and this business. But uh, it it is. It's really interesting. I mean, depends on what you're kind of in this business for. I mean, if you're in this business to act and to perform, then you get to a point where you could be doing it for two or three people. It doesn't really matter. Like you're doing it for the art of it. When you're sort of starting out or you want to be famous, you want to, you know, when you want to be famous and, and stuff like that, you want that so that it can open doors, give you opportunities for better roles. So it is very exciting to do that. But then a lot of things happen where you're like, okay, the, you know, privacy elements and just the world's complicated place. So I don't know. I've made a lot of mistakes sort of going up that road, to, you know, 30 something years. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm proud of like what I've learned and, and the path I'm on now. Um, I don't like, you know, beating myself up anymore, or like regretting things. So it's good to stay positive and just keep working. I mean, it really is about the work. And nowadays with people's phones and anything, you can put monologues together, you can set it up in a cool way and film it, and you could have your own fan base in that world. So it's really open to people that are in this business to entertain people. <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity nowadays. Are you a fan of this whole situation right now with obviously social media and TikTok? I mean, I'm 43, so I'm right behind you on the age scale. And we're in a whole different world, my man. Like these yeah. kids can do a six second video next thing they're famous. Are you a fan of how quickly this can all turn? Or do you kind of yearn for the whole, hey, you got to pay your dues in this business to make it type situation? No, I mean... I don't really care about any of that stuff. I mean, however you, you know, um, make a name for yourself or, you know, you're able to, you know, go after your dream, whatever sort of it is. I just like that opportunity. Like, I like that it opens the door to so many, you know, more people and opportunities and, you know, chances for people to build their own careers. I mean, I'm, my favorite part about, any kind of producing or any kind of businesses that I start is that you're able to employ people. You know, it really is kind of the greatest aspect of, of building businesses, you know? So I don't know. You know, I like that people are able to build their own brands, build their own businesses. You know, there's a lot of fakeness and weirdness and kind of creepiness out there. So you have to kind of 
wade through there. Do I miss like the old school kind of like, uh, I not really me because I've always been sort of different. I've kind of, I don't know, there's something about that um, kind of, uh, any kind of group that like we're the, you know, we're the best and we're going to tell you guys if you're good enough to be one of us, I'm not into. <laughs> that goes for religion or anything. I mean, I like inclusive everybody. Like I want everyone to win. That's sort of my, my whole thing. So that's, <laughs> that's all we got to focus on. Dude, the thing I want to talk to you about is wrestling. I, I, I had no idea how good a wrestler you were. And I, <laughs> I feel almost idiotic. And this is how I found out, by the way. I was prepping for the interview, but I have Big E, who's a WWE superstar, oh, coming cool. on tomorrow. Oh, and cool. somehow I was Google searching, and you were in a box, and he was in a box. And then this thing comes up of David Arquette and WCW. I'm like, wait, what the fuck? This can't be true. <laughs> Dude, you were actually a pretty good wrestler. <laughs> yeah well i wrestled for the last two years i'm a huge fan of big e and i love that he's getting this opportunity i'm so like uh i'm back in his 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 whole run i think the guy's great um yeah wrestling's a whole world that i sort of have been a fan of and was just sort of have you know been kind of involved in but uh I just love it. I mean, WWE had such a good show last night with Monday Night Raw. And I don't know. It's just been such a fun time for wrestling with AEW coming up. So I don't know. I'm just happy as a fan now. It hurts really bad to wrestle. So I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore. Well, I was going to ask you that because if you saw an AEW like a month or two ago, Shaq did it and he went all in. I mean, he fell through a table. I'm like, how is Shaq surviving it? Like when you're doing that, are you actually getting hurt? Do they prep you? What's the process to make sure that you're not destroying your spinal cord or doing something crazy? Well, with wrestling, I mean, if you're honestly wrestling, there's a chance of you really, you know, dying <laughs> anytime you step into the ring. Like no joke. Like it's actually, and once you start learning stuff about it, and once you start experiencing, you see sort of how painful kind of like getting hit by a car every time you step into the ring so it's pretty intense yeah it takes a lot of training and a lot of like preparing your body for the sort of impacts that it's going to take after you went through it what was what was the rehab like were you in bed for four days did you recover a few days later like what oh, was it like four days months your body's not back i mean your body's kind of never the same after you wrestle it's just you got new pains and new stuff but uh the experience of wrestling has really changed me a lot i love interacting with the fans and getting to know them and seeing sort of america through um you know the the vehicle of like traveling the airports and just going to wrestling events to wrestling events it's pretty cool uh way to see the world by the way, I love that you're a current fan. I, I knew you had done it, but I didn't realize that you were still a WWE and AEW fan. I do a ton of wrestlers on the show, and it's funny oh, to see you this as a celebrity fun. fan that you're engaged. Oh, yeah. I'm a former world champion. I don't know. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll forever. I'm in the record books. I'm connected to it, like it or not. <laughs> 
I want to talk to you about turning 50, man, because as a 43-year-old, turning 40 absolutely was a fucked up year for me. 40 to 41 was an absolute shit show. I was in depression. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What was 50 like for you? What can I expect? Oh, man, I'm not there yet. But I don't know. I think like the cool thing about kind of turning 50 for me has been a little bit of the like, I don't give a crap anymore chip has turned <laughs> you know you're just like i don't know sometimes you can blow stuff off as you know stuff that used to really sort of get you worked up and upset it doesn't as much or you start being able to see your emotions and feel your emotions a little more and being able to sort of sit on them for a second or you know be less reactionary um i don't know it's it's interesting i mean you know, in the documentary um, I did, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, I nearly died. And during that experience, it kind of put a lot of stuff in perspective that like, this is it. Like, you know, the whole journey that's happened so far, that is your life. And it could be, you know, over like that. So just make the most of it. Enjoy the most of it. Try not to waste your time with a lot of the energy that is just a waste of time. That's Mainly incredible. Fighting, like arguing and like <laughs> that kind of stuff. Just have firm boundaries. Know what you want. You know, if something's not your scene, get out of there. Was it like a movie story for you, David? Obviously, after going through the near-death experience, was it an instantaneous, like I'm turning my life in a whole different direction? It gives you appreciation a lot. You just are like, you really can sit with like, you know, gratitude. I know if you're going through depression or so, any kind of stuff, it's hard though, man. I go through like, you know, weekly stuff. It could be, you know, you could have really hard days, but you know, you get through those days and and then when you make it through and then you can find the time where you could find gratitude. I feel that really helps me get through a lot of stuff, especially in the stressful times when you can just be like, you know, something as simple as the wind on a hot day. And you're like, oh, that feels so good. And when you take that moment and like recognize it, it does open up stuff to then you start seeing little things and the taste of some kind of like tea or something. Old, you know, so I guess I'm getting old. Because it's, but it's good. The, the sort of, you know, I'm less attracted to like horror movies and scary stuff and violence. I'm so much more attracted to like wholesome things and like fun stuff. And, you know, I love a good, you know, I love a good breeze. <laughs> You're like, forget the partying. I love to sit on the beach and just feel a good breeze now. I'm telling you, no, you want to, yeah, the, the parties become like, you know a kids party where you're seeing these kids like having fun on the you know on the trampoline or something that's like the best time <laughs> it becomes really cool when it's like that too because you're like i don't know your your necessity for fun or your definition of what fun is kind of changes and then it makes it kind of like i don't know makes it safer and funner and like it's not scary or dark i want to talk to you about growing up because obviously patricia your sister went on to win an oscar become an acclaimed actress obviously rosanna broke through had a career you broke through when you guys are little kids you're running around at home 
is there are you guys like we're all going to be actors how did this all begin like did anyone envision that i mean it's hard enough to make one person make it in hollywood but for three out of a family that's crazy like how did it all begin and did you guys have any idea yeah well we're fourth generation it goes back to vaudeville for us and even perhaps before that so it was always something that was just sort of in our blood. We did a lot of little plays or like improvisation games as kids. Mm -hmm. Our parents were really into creativity in general as a big force for us, like a driving force. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel blessed. I love my sisters and my brothers and, and the careers they've had, my dad and my grandfather. So my mother. Um, and my grandmother. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I just feel, you know, it's, I feel definitely blessed to have been from a family that put, sort of puts the focus on creativity. I think that's kind of what our superpower is, is all of us humans is that, you know, whatever that little hobby is that you get a kick out of, you know, whatever that thing is that kind of just takes the edge off or something that makes you feel like you're being creative or, or just, you know, something you can get lost in. I think that's really important for everyone. And I'm glad that we were raised as that was sort of something for us to focus on. I'm so surprised they didn't discourage you because it's such a tough business. I, if I was in the business, I'd be like, go be an accountant, go be a surgeon, David, like get the hell away from this thing. Well, there's definitely that, you know, there's definitely an understanding of it's not an easy business and it's full of rejection and you're constantly being scrutinized. And if you don't like, you know, that kind of focus on you at every level, I mean, they'll love you one second and they'll absolutely destroy you the next and you have to be prepared for that. And you can't take any of it personally. <laughs> And ultimately, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> Nothing matters. I mean, what is this crazy world we're living in now? So to me, like, okay, if nothing matters, let's at least have fun in the process. So hopefully, like, you don't, you know, you're kind to people and you can enjoy your life. Like, that's the game. Uh, Bootsy Bellows, because it's named after your mom, which I had no idea. And I had John Taffer on the show recently, and he's talking about the LA nightlife and growing up at Troubadour and then Beanery and all that stuff. How crazy and how hard is it to own a night spot in LA? As an owner yourself, how difficult a job is it? Well, I have incredible partners with the Hwood Group. And, you know, when we launched it and when we did all this stuff, I was a lot more involved than I am now. Plus, I'm so much older. I feel weird just even going. I'm like, oh, I'm not like, you know, I'm not 21 anymore. So I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's great when we get like, you know, we throw parties at, Super Bowl or Coachella and stuff like that, where we get these incredible performances. So stuff like that's really amazing, beautiful. And uh yeah, so it's interesting. You know, it was like one of the first clubs I went to when I was growing up in LA is now, you know, it was bar one, which is in the same space that you know the bootsies is in. So I don't know, it's but it's 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 weird to like turn around 33 years later now 
I'm, you know, almost 50, too old to go to my own club. <laughs> what, when was the moment you knew Bootsy had become a hot spot? Because it's been a hot spot for decades now, but what was the exact moment where you're like, man, this place has arrived? I don't know. When, when you like, you know, when you're hanging out with Post Malone or David Chappelle, <laughs> like, you know, Justin <laughs> Bieber, like, you know, I don't know, just all these incredible performances and acts and and, and um i don't know when when that kind of stuff happens you just look around and everybody around's like you know these incredibly famous people you're kind of like wow we did something that you know worked i guess it's just right, a fun thing too it's named bootsy bellows because my mom like had a burlesque dancing name she only burlesque danced shortly like a couple times but her name was bootsy bellows so i found that out from her and, and that's why we called it that all right before i let you go domino battle of the bones what can people expect what do you hope the experience is for people oh uh, it's just i don't know it's it's really a fun just a fun ride in the world of dominoes where there's a lot of like trash talking and you know there's some like, it's just fun. It's like this kind of like, I don't know, hood vibe, <laughs> like hood humor, you know, which I love. I love movies like Fridays or, you know, House Party. So it has that real 90s comedy vibe to it, which I love. Awesome, man. Pleasure having you on the show, David. Great stories, man. And Thank congrats you. on the movie. And good luck with 50 years old. Stay healthy, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, brother. Appreciate Take care. It. All right, folks, that was the one, the only David Arquette. David, thanks for a fabulous interview. Stick around for a while with us, David. We love you to death. You're a fan favorite, big fan of yours. And uh, his new movie is called Domino Battle of the Bones. Catch it in theaters, VOD, digital. It's pretty much everywhere. And it's a super fun movie. Next up, Angela Serafian, Clementine from Westworld, brand new movie, King Knight, fabulous chat. Love this lady. Here she is, Angela Serafian. All right, I got a great day on the Endless Hustle here today. Angela, congratulations, brand new movie. I was just bragging to you that I'm an enormous Westworld fanatic. So super pumped to have you on the show. Your new movie, King Knight, tell me all about it. Um, so I, I, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. I came on, it was so funny. You spoke about Westworld. I was in a fitting for season three of Westworld in the fitting room and my brother was with me and I got a script. It just, it was in the email. I was like, do you think, I was like, do you mind quickly reading this? Cause there was like a really fast turnaround. So I, I remember, I think it was like either Wednesday or a Thursday or, and then they start filming on Monday of that following week. So my brother starts reading it and he starts laughing and laughing. And I was like, oh, that's a good sign. It's like a really good sign. And I'm in the middle of changing outfits and trying things on. And finally I get out and read the first 10 pages and I respond to Ricky Bates, the director who had emailed me with this really lovely email. And um, I was like, I'm very into this. I'd love to talk or I don't know how this all works. This is pre-COVID, obviously we could meet. And so I then met Matthew and 
and Ricky and they were just absolutely lovely and had a fitting and we started filming three days later. So it was, yeah, it was such a lovely experience. The whole thing has been great. Wait a minute. It was that quick a turnaround. You get the script and three days later you're in production. I mean, I think, no, I, I think I got the script the, the week prior. So if we were filming Monday, I got it maybe Monday or Tuesday of the week prior and then made the decision and jumped in Friday and had a fitting Saturday and started filming, I think Monday or Sunday or something. It, the schedule worked with Westworld. So that was, that was good. And it was filming in LA. So it was good. That's amazing. So what did you respond to? I'm always fascinated when actors make their choices because as someone who I hate reading, I'm a talker, I'm a communicator. And I'll always talk, I've been talking to actors for over a decade, but it's always, I read the script and I loved it. What does an actor actually respond to? So when you're reading the script, can you visualize it in your head? How does it all work for you to get to a yes? Well, I, I'm the kind, I read a lot. You, you're like my mom. She, she hates reading too. She's like, I can't read. I'll look at pictures and read. But um, I know in the first three, four pages, if I like a script, you just know. I read a script called The Immigrant years ago. I knew from the first two pages, this is something amazing. Like you feel it in your gut. Now with this, I, I love the relationship between Willow and Thorn. I love the humor. I love kind of the absurdity. There, it was just very different than anything else I read. And so that was very appealing to me. Like I, I like being a part of something that's changing kind of how I see things. And the way Ricky sees the world, obviously you could tell from all of his films is he's just very different mind and creativity and imagination that um, it was something that I wanted to be a part of. I, I knew instantly. So the humor really was very different than anything else I'd read. It wasn't such high comedy. It was so straight, which I love to do. And I hadn't really done it. And I hadn't done a comedy in a while. So I thought this would be such a lovely experience. Plus I worked with Matthew on Criminal Minds. I mean, we were in passing. We didn't have scenes together, but I thought that would be fun too. By the way, I want to touch on The Immigrant because what a brilliant movie that was. Brilliantly directed. You work with two of the best actors of our generation with Marion and obviously Joaquin Phoenix. So that's a movie that by, I don't feel like enough people have seen, but it's so brilliant. But I want to talk to you about working with Joaquin and Marion. Like Joaquin is obviously, he. if you were to put a Mount Rushmore great actors of our generation, he might actually be on that Rushmore with Daniel Day-Lewis and a couple others. What was it like working with him? Like, what is that experience like? Because I've heard so many different stories that he's super method, he's super quiet, but what was he actually like? He's so sweet. He's such a sweet, wonderful human being. And, you know, this idea of the method is really interesting because I, I don't know if people really know what the method is, but I, when, I, when I'm working, I think everything is inclusive, meaning any, any interaction, any... Thing that you're looking at it's all a part of what you're creating so I think that's the kind of actor he is that it's not there is no separation from oh action and cut that it's actually always living you're always flowing like you don't need action to take to have the wants and the needs and the things that you want to do they're living all the time so I think that's how he was acting I I, I remember we were we were in Long Island and he was 
there was a scene because because the scene because everything takes place in Ellis Island in the initial part of the film in the beginning and the end so he was kind of dancing he was dancing and he was about to get in but they were still setting up he wasn't he wasn't waiting for the camera to be ready for him to do what he was going to do he was just kind of always flowing and I I don't know I love that and Marion Cotillard oh my god I love her so much and it was she and I play sisters in the film it was instantaneous like I was so moved by her and she by me and I met her baby and her mom and I don't know it was such a gift that film when you have a fond experience like that is it more of a learning experience is it something that you put into your mental album and it's more of an enjoyable experience how do you walk away from something like that and what type of mark does it leave on you it's it's it was it was just like you know you you have those moments in life that are really special you like birthdays or you just have these memories that are, fill your heart that those moments i shared with them were some of the most full sensorily when i say sensorily like experientially. I, I love New York City. I love living in New York City. I got to make this and working alongside James Gray in New York City. It was just a gift, the whole thing. So I remember feeling so full and so inspired and so moved and so, 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 so many things. I love the crew. I loved James, I love the collaboration. I love that he would ask the first AD, well, what do you think of this shot? If you know, we zoom in on his face and then zoom out and he's like, I think it's a crock of shit. And I thought that was hilarious because he trusts his crew. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, forget it. I mean, he's talking to the cinematographer, his first AD, everybody's collaborating and it's not like, oh, you're a PA, you don't matter. Everybody matters on that side of the family. So I don't know, I don't know if I answered your question, but. No, you can tell the richness of the experience just by listening to you. And as someone who does this for a living, I'm an artist myself because this is an art. Interviewing people, chatting with people is an art. And when you get, when you're in that moment, it's like being in the matrix. I always tell people, you're in the matrix, everything is flowing, it's organic. And then once it's over, you're out of the matrix and you either really loved being in the matrix or it really fucking sucked. Yeah. And it's one or the other. But when you loved it, it's such a memorable experience. Yeah, and, and you know, in a very different way, this experience with Ricky and Matthew and the whole cast is so it, dramatically different, dramatically different. There was a lightheartedness and a flow and easiness and Shaheen, our, our cinematographer, was such an artist that he became a part of the, like he became my partner at times when I was acting. You know, it's such a fluid thing and we were filming out into, into yeah, Topanga Canyon and all over LA. So I don't know. I, I like it when it's easy. It was so easy. It was so cute and happy. And all I felt was grateful for the whole thing. Yeah. Speaking of grateful, you were part of the best shows of our generation. I can't stress enough. I will put the first season of Westworld up against anything. Really? Breaking Bad. Oh my God. That first season? I don't want to give away what happens, but everybody came in with their Michael Jordan game. Anthony <laughs> Hopkins is firing on all cylinders. Evan's firing on all cylinders. You're firing all cylinders. No one knows what the fuck is going on. Reddit is trying to figure your show out. 
I'm literally, I've never, I didn't even know what Reddit was. I talked to James Marsden about this after the first season. Yeah. I'm like, bro, I never even heard of Reddit. I'm 43. So it's probably 41, 40 at that point. I'm like, what the fuck is Reddit? And he's like, dude, same here. Meanwhile, I'm on Reddit after every episode. <laughs> I know. It's so funny you say that because Jonah, Jonah Nolan, the creator of the show and Lisa, they were on Reddit all the time going, I love these theories. Like some of the stuff on there is so hilarious. And I, I'm now on Reddit. I've been on Reddit because of Westworld because I'm just going like, there's so many interesting thoughts and the way it all works is, is fascinating. But thank you for those really nice things that you said about the show. I, I remember thinking whatever, whatever's in that Nolan family between Chris and Jonathan and Lisa, I'm like, Whatever's going on there, there's something, they need to test them for whatever brilliance was in that DNA. But I literally remember thinking, who thought this up? Like the complexities and the story and the characters and where it ended up. I was just like, holy shit, pure brilliance. I can, So I wanna ask you, like when you're, you obviously privy to the scripts, you're filming to this thing. Are you kind of feeling as you're in it and making it the same thing? Are you like, this is just insane brilliance, what people have come up with here. I, I'll tell you from the sides, I'm talking when I auditioned and I read what they'd written because, you know, we, we get sides all the time and you don't get sides like that. I, I happened to be in San Francisco that I, I finished a small film here and I, I, when I say small, I mean like an indie movie and which is fucking great. Um, I was in San Francisco and I in the middle of the night I got a, an email oh you have an audition tomorrow and I was for the first time there for like three days on vacation and I read the sides and I was going oh my god what is this like it's an actor's dream that's how it was poetic it was so kind of surreal and and out there existential and it was all of the things and you got to do so much as an actor you dream of that stuff so I knew from the sides what how special it was. I didn't end up going, but I got to audition for it on my birthday. And I was like, I'm gonna get this as a gift to myself for my birthday. And I did, which was fucking great. Um, and then the rest is history. It's been magic working on that, that show. It's been incredible. How does that transform things? Because it was a it was a monster for HBO, especially again, that first season, it became a behemoth. It was I think it was like their biggest numbers outside of Game of Thrones in forever. Yeah. When you're part of a project like that, the visibility has got to be off the charts. Are all of a sudden producers coming at you from different directions or scripts that you may have not touched before now coming at you? How does it all work when you're part of something like that? That really didn't happen in that way. You would think, you would think that I get like all these scripts and producers would reach out. I want to work with this person, that it didn't happen that way. But what did happen was I, I started noticing that while I was out walking or, or go to, going to a place, people would look at me in, in recognition of the role that I played. And that was pretty cool. Like, that was cool. Like, I had this one instance when I was in, in line for coffee and this guy's like quietly, very quietly said, freeze all motor functions. No way, that's awesome. Like, holy shit, this is something else. Like, if, if, if he's saying that line, that's this is really reaching people. So that was kind of great. Yeah, and Clementine is such an awesome character. I mean, you're just kicking ass left and right. I just imagine that's 
between you and then what Dolores ends up becoming, that's got to be just so much fun to play that shit. Because, you know, obviously we hear all about strong female characters and all that great stuff. You guys are strong female characters. I mean, you were definitely kicking some ass on that show. Thank you. Thank you. That means so much. I love playing Clementine. I love her so much. It's been amazing. So you're Armenian. I'm actually Russian. So I... I, my parents are from Ukraine, but it was the Soviet Union back then, but I speak Russian. But anytime I talk to anybody in the business who's from that part of the world, there's only certain people from that part of the world that can truly understand family life and parenting and all that stuff. So do you come from like a traditional family that is in the Armenian slash USSR mold? Like, did you grow up in that type of environment? I did, yeah. My family so close we're, we're really close my mom my brother my dad my grandmother uh, sadly my my dad and, and grandmother passed away but it's the three of us now so we're really tight and i i guess it is a very kind of russian armenian european way of being possibly like being really kind of connected armenians live with their families for a very long time like we just are that way and we're each other's for better or worse, I guess you would say. So I do come from that. And there is a big Armenian community in Los Angeles, huge. Like it's probably bigger than anywhere, anywhere else in the world outside of Armenia itself. So I've been around Armenians. I've seen the culture. I've had the desserts. I've had the food. I know the feistiness and the passion and all of it. And I love it. I love that part of me, you know, and there are a lot of you know, Armenians in the industry too. So we find each other. When you decide you're gonna go into acting, because so my, I have a unique story. I was a financial advisor for a decade, but always had this dream of being in entertainment and at 30 sold my company. It's just a long story we don't have time for, but it was a very hard thing for my parents because again, coming from that part of the world, the expectation is you're gonna be a doctor or an accountant or an economist you insert whatever career, but you get what I'm saying. So the arts is usually not something that your Russian or Soviet parents want you to do. Did you have that experience? So when you decide you're going to go into the arts, was your family supportive of it? Or was it like, no, what are you doing, Angel? Go be a doctor. Well, my dad was an actor and my mom's a painter. So I came from a family, very creative people. And so my mom was always supportive of whatever my dreams were. I grew up on stage. I grew up playing the piano. I danced ballet. I, I sang. I, it was always kind of like, you got to follow your dreams. We didn't fit the mold in that way. Cause I completely understand. My dad did say you should become a doctor. I went to a medical magnet high school. I didn't become a doctor. All my friends did, but um, I, I didn't, I couldn't do it. I, I grew up in the arts. Like acting is like breathing the way that you knew that you wanted to be an entertainer. It's suffocating if you can't do the thing that you know you're meant to do. So I, I did have their support, which was, I think, very, very fortunate. I don't know if I'd be where I am if I didn't have their support. When you get in the industry, you're, you're obviously a very stunning woman, but there's a million beautiful people out there. How do you, what's your mindset at that point? Is it like, all right, I'm going to make it? Or is it like shit every day? Day, what am I doing? I made a mistake. What was your mindset as you broke into the industry, but then as you started making strides and getting roles, and then obviously you end up on Westworld. Now all of a sudden everybody sees you. 
as you walk, look through that ladder of progress, what was your mindset throughout it all? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good comparison. So briefly after high school, I went to college for about a year. And after I was done with college for that one year, I went to, to Milan, to Italy to model, right? For one month, I couldn't stand it. I hated it. I, I'm not, I don't see myself as a beautiful girl. I don't think that my aesthetic look is the thing that is most appealing about me. I think that I appreciate, thank you for your compliments when people do think that I look beautiful, but I don't see myself in that way. So after a month of being in Milan, I was like, I can't waste my life on this. I hate it. I hate all of it. And I just don't find any fulfillment in it. And the reason I love acting is because it's through acting that I'm able to understand humanity, understand myself, understand why the things, why people do and live and create and exist the way that they, they do. I, I, I've been very much alone, like a loner. I don't, I don't have 15,000 friends, but for me through films, I was able to learn those things. Like watching Dawson's Creek when I was 15 going, oh, she gets a period too, right. Um, and you can have a crush on this person. Like all of these things were so comforting for me to get, but then also to get to do it, I found, I, it, I don't know what better way to say it. It's like drinking water. I need to do it. I, I become a better person when I do what I love. And I think that that is the reason why I've been going forward. Cause I, it's not good. The idea of comparing myself to other women or other people really is not even something that crosses your mind so much when you're doing what you love. Although sure, like I, I, I would go to an audition room. I used to be a beast. Like I'd go into an audition room. I'd see the other girls. I wouldn't look at them twice. I'd stay focused because people want to socialize. And I'm like, I'm not here to be your friend. Like I'm here to do my job. And usually I would crush them. Like I'd kill it. I've heard girls, I've become friends with a few people and they're like, that person would never talk to you because you scared them in that audition room so many years ago. I was like, I don't even know who that is. But that's sort of my MO. Like that's how it goes for me. I love that. I love that you were like the evil auditioner. That's amazing. I just kept to myself. I wasn't like trying to sabotage them or trying to, because there are people that way. They try to, try to find a way to distract you from what you're set to do. I, that was never my thing. My thing was like, just don't bother me. Like, just leave me alone. I'm not here to hang out with you. So what would happen? Because again, people who are not actors will never understand. You've got, it's like a cattle call pretty much. You've got a million people walking in the room. You're crushing the audition, but then you might not get the role and you might've brought your A plus game. Sure. How would you handle that type of rejection? So you kill the audition. You nailed it, but then they end up hiring someone who may not even be as strong as you. How do you walk through that, walk through that fire pit? Well, I think of it like this. If I brought my A game and I've done everything that I could and they don't want that, I'm cool with that because I, I don't want to go on a set, have millions of dollars at stake, do the thing, get fired. Like I, I'm happy if they don't want me when I brought everything that I could to the table because I go, okay, well, this is they don't want this. So we're good, you know, moving on next, next gig coming around the corner. Like I don't try to linger on things, but I've had situations where I've gotten something schedules don't work 
and it's broken my heart because then you go, oh, I could have done this movie with this fucking actor and this script with this director and it would have been magnificent. I recently got offered a movie that I probably shouldn't talk about a role that I would have loved to do, but scheduling wise, it didn't work out. And, you know, those moments are a little heartbreaking, but I have to think that maybe it wasn't meant to be. It's fascinating. Arts, the arts are an incredible thing. It's in, but then you went in and got Clementine on your birthday. So it's incredible. Yeah. So you, you knew, right? Like you just pretty much knew. You're like, I'm getting this. This is my birthday gift. I just went in going, I, I love this. I don't know. It's, I feel it's meant to be. I could feel it in my soul. I was doing what Joaquin Phoenix was doing on The Immigrant. I was living with it every day. And that happened. When it's meant, it is. My final question to Angela, one of the main reasons that I started this show was to talk to successful people from all genres about the principles and mentality that help them make their success. My question is to you, what are the habits that you incorporate in your own life to continue to elevate? Well, first of all, thank you for thinking I'm a successful person. That means a lot. Um, and secondly, um, the habits. Well, recently for me, it's really to grow an awareness of how I think and function in my own life. Right now, that's sort of where I am, which is going, how am I seeing the world? How am I responding to people? What is the world that I'm creating? And to constantly challenge and ask those, I guess, harder questions, talk about the things that I don't wanna talk about or look at. Because for, for a time in my life, I was trying to live so I could just be happy in denial of the truth. And now I'm living and growing through it so I can grow and be a better person and developing a kind of discipline about um, prioritizing what's important, who's important to be with. I don't know, I, I think it sounds more kind of philosophical and less kind of formulaic, but it's sort of where I am right now. I'm finding, I'm finding that to be the only way to then get to a better place in my own life because it makes me happier i had a friend once said i'm getting addicted to feeling good like it's it, this feeling that i get after meditating it's becoming addic an addiction and i thought oh that's that's pretty beautiful like why not get addicted to feeling good about yourself doing things that make you feel happy and 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 inspire you to see things like i i keep thinking and I'll say this and we can end, but you know, when you travel and you're going on vacation and you go to a new place and you can really see that city with all of its sounds and the new kind of signs out there. And you're like, oh, this is so interesting. The woman on the corner who sells lemons, you're like, whoa, look at her. Like, you're so curious. Like imagine living your life like that every day. That's, that's sort of what I'm trying to do. I had one more question. I saw a picture of you at a front row of fashion show, a major fashion show. I don't know which one it was, but it got me thinking. You probably got to experience some really cool stuff, especially when Westworld became a hit. What was the coolest thing you got to experience? What was just like the, I can't believe I'm here moment? It's going to sound weird. I was on set. I was on set. We were doing tests and it was a full Western, like the whole city, people walking, horses going, the train moving, and they were testing it out. And I remember, I think JJ Abrams, Jonah, Lisa, 
all the producers were there and it was just beautiful gorgeous we were shooting on film and I was just going oh my god this is real I'm wearing this outfit going this is your dream you know you've seen westerns your whole life and how about this whole world we've created I don't know that was it that moment I think Angela, Angela Serafian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Endless Hustle. Congrats on the new movie. I saw Westworld's coming back for season four. Hopefully we'll see you there. And uh, I loved your answers. Really incredible, incredible way of looking at life and the craft. It was awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Arthur. All right, folks, that was Angela Serafian. Angela, as always, thank you for a wonderful chat. Loved having you on the show. And I cannot wait for season four of Westworld. Can't come back soon enough. Can't wait to see you in it and can't wait to see Evan and the brilliant cast behind that show. Just brilliant. And make sure to check out our new movie, King Knight. We're finishing it up. Last but not least, the I feel like the face of American soccer. Men in Blazers co-host Roger Bennett. His new book is called Reborn in the USA. And I want to plug again, number one New York Times bestseller, Roger Bennett because uh, that's a pretty cool achievement. Congratulations, Roger. Here he is, Men in Blazers co-host, Roger Bennett. All right, it is going to be a football type day on the Endless Hustle as I have the king of American football and may I say, number one New York Times bestseller, Roger Bennett. First of all, how fucking cool is it to hear number one New York Times bestseller, Roger? Oh, I heard the only thing I heard was you uh, refer to me as part of the royal family who I don't believe in. But you're a beautiful man and it is a joy, a joy to be with you. Same here, my man. Congratulations on the new book, talking all about growing up in England and how you decided to come grace us and what you've built with Men in Blazers, man. Absolutely incredible. You've helped popularize soccer as as I must say, football in America, probably more than any other non-athlete has. So congratulations, but let's start you're, with the you're, book. A, you're a lovely man. We are just surfers on a big wave. Football was happening here long, long time before we ever set foot in this country. And it's the only difference. It was always meant to be an overnight success. It was meant to be, as we joke, the sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. And the honest truth is, instead, it's been a slow and steady climb to which many, many, many people have contributed. And we're just... I think to be candid, Arthur, we're the only people holding it back at this point. You think men and blazers might actually be a liability versus yeah, an asset? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get rid of those two ball blokes, and that sport is just going to go way over the top. Yeah, they're like, we got McConaughey now. We really don't need you guys. Good I luck. Mean, I mean, amazing watching that guy. God, watching Matthew McConaughey as as an American a man as you can have. I mean, that is like unless Kenny Powers came out of retirement and started to play football for the United States, having McConaughey in his green suit with his bongo strapped around his thighs, marching towards a delirious fan base in Austin of a team he owns, a team he owns. That, I mean, that if we don't declare that you know football has become a normal and wonderful sport in America in that moment, and I don't know what it'll take. I actually had him on the show three weeks ago and we were talking all about owning Austin FC and he is having the best time of his life with that. I think forget acting. I think he's, he's really found his niche with being a sports owner. He's a joy. He's an amazing man. He came on our show 
Um, and he, he drops it to one of his hilarious um, McConaugheyisms. He just looks in the camera and he goes, just keep on living. And I said, is that really, does that really mean anything? Like, is that, is that really a meaningful comment? He goes, well, just think what the other possibility is. And God, I will say, I have thought so many times about the wisdom of that man during lockdown, during the pandemic, during COVID, which we both shared, Arthur, in, in Manhattan. I have thought about just the bloody depth of wisdom of Matthew McConaughey. Just keep on living just became all of our motto for the past 17 months. So God bless that man. He was ahead of the curve. I mean, can you believe it? The man who dropped all right, all right, all right, has redefined inspiration for all of us. Oh, I get myself a green suit and a bongo and go and buy myself a soccer team. <laughs> First of all, I'd mentioned this at the top, but congratulations, man. Number one New York Times bestseller. For those who may not understand the true distinction of what that means, that's the top of the ladder. Can you believe it? I mean, when you get notified that that's the case, where are you? What are you doing? And have you calmed down yet? So uh, number one, we don't know each other. Uh, Arthur well but I find it very awkward uh, to take any uh, praise whatsoever I'm full of self-loathing 97% self-loathing I'd like to think and um, and so when people say nice things I'm one of those human beings that never knows how to take it you're shriveling I've been watching you're like legit like a little prune shriveling up every time I compliment you so this is this is like quite a big accolade and um and also to tell you more than you want to know, when you write a book in this day and age, it's a crazy thing to do. It's like this much to write. We podcast, I'll, I'll tape a podcast, bang it out, get massive uh, pickup, instant feedback. You go again the next day. It's just amazing. You tweet, it's amazing. A book you're working on for like three bloody years and it's detail work. And it's all, and at the end of the day, you're like building a black and white television set. You're essentially building something that not that many people give a crap about or have need for books. I love them. I revere them. I adore them, but like the you know books are in this day and age. It's a it's like final collecting. It's like kind of a, a thing you do because it's kind of it's who you are, reflecting of who you are. And so when you put a book out, I'll be honest, it's just so beautiful to have, especially a book on this subject about a love of America, like loving America and the profound notion of the idea of America in this time of deep challenge. For it's a love letter to America at a time when I think it could really do with one. To have anyone read it is a joy and a relief. To have the people, the thousands who have bought it is bloody amazing. And anything above that, so I'm just delighted, A, it's really the response. And then here's to answer your question, well, how it happened. So England are playing in the biggest game of my lifetime. 55 years of hurt. They have crapped the bed every time in a tournament. Hope, false hope, shattered dreams, trauma essentially listeners who don't know anything about football they are the new york knicks of world football i mean just like they it's shocking to me that they are not owned by uh, by the new york knicks owner they are so unbelievably self-sabotaging and so it's just pain it's agony it's trauma and on wednesday they are playing in the in a semi-final that could lead them to their first final since 1966. And I also do know that the New York Times bookseller list is put out, book list is put out at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I try, when you're a writer, anyone who's put out a book, they spend their whole time looking at their Amazon number, constantly refresh, refresh. And it's a torture. So I've done it before. You just essentially are constantly punching yourself in the face. So this time, 
I decided to not look at my Amazon number once. I wasn't ever going to go there. I was just going to focus on doing my work, promoting the book. And so I did know the Times list was coming out, but I, you know, the game was so massive. The stakes were so high, all the agony of my life of England crapping the bed and tears and the gods have clay feet. And why man, we used to have an empire and now we're just shit at football. And, um, and in the game, we went to extra time against an amazing Danish team and a man called Harry Kane, who in an earlier era would have just, it's the kind of guy that would have just casually got into a, a spitfire on the runway and just shot up and shot down 12 Germans who were attacking London and then landed the spitfire, got out, played cricket, scored 100 for England to smash Australia and then casually scored a hat-trick to win the World Cup for England. He scored a goal that put England in the lead. It was, it was just a, a remarkable human moment and my phone blew up in that second. I will say I threw beers in the air, ripped my shirt off in that moment like every English uh, person is is uh, legally obliged to do and my phone blew up and I just assumed the phone was blowing up because oh yeah Harry Kane England 1966 55 but then I looked down and it was my editor the great Kerry Thornton she was just like holy crap phone me and I know Kerry does not know anything about football and uh, and then I looked again and my phone had blown up because everybody I knew in the publishing industry was just lol and uh, just what and just uh, holy shit man and so that was it forever. And you know, what's your favorite sport of it? I love basketball. I play basketball. And who's your team? I love the Lakers. I loved Magic Johnson growing up, then Kobe, and now, unfortunately, LeBron. So when I know, when, man, Alex Caruso, right? the greatest, greatest, the, king. Ball, the, the greatest bald athlete of all time, hands down. I adore that man. He's everything I love in an athlete. Um, so when... The Lakers, the great moments of your childhood, you can remember where you were in great, great moments. Your biography is forever wrapped into incredible Kobe moments, incredible, you know, Kareem moments, all that crap, incredible Caruso moments, and <laughs> putting him in that pantheon. And um, and that's it. Forever in that second in my life, I realized that um, this incredible moment for English football, I will forever just have wrapped up in that bizarre, surreal moment of just, to be honest, waves of relief. That's what it is, that people enjoy the book, love the book, and are engaging with it is just, it's so deeply bloody humbling. You got to do something that I'm insanely jealous of, and it may not be what you think. Succession is my favorite show. <laughs> And the fact that you were selected to host the after show podcast made me so insanely jealous. And I yeah. do a lot with HBO. And yeah. I was like, listen, guys, I'll give you one of my pinkies to do that. Yeah, and you got to do it. So how much love have you gotten from the Succession fans and how much fun have you had doing that? Um, you only offered a pinky. You wanna you? you gonna, I I don't want to know what you offered. Arthur, then you're gonna go big or go home. Is all I'm telling you. Um, so you know, it was I, I adore the show. Um, adore the show for so many bloody reasons. I'm totally. Um, I mean, I, I think they they're just the casting decisions that they made um, are so truly remarkable for where so many of these characters were in their career. Brian Cox is so grateful to be Logan Roy, to finally be the star of a show after years of scene stealing. Um, 
Uh, Kieran Culkin, you know, has had, has had just a, you know, he's fleetingly done remarkable things and to create this role where he is now just deeply, deeply uh, part of uh, popular culture in just remarkable ways. Matthew McFadden, who's a genius, um, is, you know, starring role after starring role in very straight, stiff, wonderful English. I mean, the, the, it would there be a PBS masterpiece theatre if it wasn't for bloody... Matthew McFadden. And so for them to be like, no, 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 that's not what you're going to be. You're going to be a Midwestern bumbling, um, deeply aspirational, covetous doofus. It's like, and, and for that to bring out genuinely the best there, Alan Ruck to genuinely, to he's like the Ted, to, to, get, it, to get him out for Cameron, that just that generationally definitive role, to give him another, another definitive role is just so uh, on and on and on and on. So I've always been, Genuinely fascinated. I'm total team Jen, Jerry, J. Smith, uh, Cameron, and um, and it was uh, it was just uh, it was lockdown at uh, the height of lockdown, um, and to speak to each of those incredible human beings, to speak to Jeremy Strong, holy crap, he's the it, best. Kendall Kendall Roy is my spirit animal. I mean, he is. I, I interviewed the whole cast before they went into season one, and I had no idea what to expect. And I'm like, what is this shit? And then I talked to Jeremy Strong, and he's a very soft-spoken, kind of laid-back dude. And then you see him bring Kendall Roy to life, and you're like, bro, that's I, acting. I, 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 he's like, to be candid, he's a sweet and soft and deeply, yeah. deeply effective. He's, there's nothing laid back. I mean, that man is so committed to the part. That man, if, if, his, if, if Kendall Roy is going off the deep end into a darkness, Jeremy Strong is going deep. He's a full-on, as method um as there can be and it was it uh, i mean it's remarkable all of these interviews i think like you can listen to them about the arc of the human being about the arc of the character but i do believe each of them are such special human beings and they cast so well that those interviews truly transcend even the show and you learn about life by listening to uh to each of these characters so god bless Let's switch sports for a minute because you get to host Men in Blazers on ice for the NHL. And I love your interviews that you're doing with all the players. How much fun has it been able to, to how much fun has it been to transition what you have had such success with in the soccer world to now the NHL world? No, so sports is a very funny world in that um, there's an American mentality. If you've won a Super Bowl and you wear a ring, then you can talk about the NFL. And if you haven't, then shut the hell up because you're not coming in the studio. And I understand that absolutely. And I admire that. But you know, sports is many, many things. And you do need people who in that moment can take you into the locker room. What do you think the coach is saying? Well, I've been there. Let me tell you when. Um, and they can tell you that. Or you need tactical geniuses who can talk about you know, you, you watch the NFL and when the when the broadcaster can call the play before it's called and it's just breathtaking, it elevates your your view. But for me, the um, I mean, sports is essentially human theatre. It's human beings, men and women making decisions in real time in the crucible of pressure with the world watching and the truly great just make better decisions more of the time than just the very good. And under those circumstances, um, I just find it genuinely it's sports and life are one and the same. You're essentially there was um, there's a, a the, the writer Camus who uh, ultimately did become a writer, but was once a very good football goalkeeper, said everything that I learned about men, about human motivation, I learned by watching football. And it's truly true. Like that's the joy. We all watch Christian Eriksen in the Euros, the Danish player who had a heart attack on the field. 
Uh, and in that moment, sport forced us to confront just the, the, the human agony that we're all going to die. You watch sport and you just see every human emotion, light and dark and everything in between. And so that's how I see sport. Sports makes me feel alive. After, like We always joke that sports allows you to feel emotions, joy, misery, hope, despair, uh, that most normal people feel in real life, but I'm dead to inside. So that's how that's how I approach sport. And when you approach sport like that, to me, it, I, I'd watch two cows um, kicking a, a ball in a field. I find that genuinely, I, even the prospect just saying that, I'm like super, oh, what? Two cows kicking a ball? Man, how's that not on ESPN2 at least? And, um, um, and so each of these sports, you can, by speaking to the athlete and we cover golf, you know, we've been the Aaron Rodgers, JJ Watt, uh, DeAndre Hopkins come on our show. It's a chance to understand their lessons about life that they've learned from their journey. And that's what we try and bring through. And the NHL is honestly such incredible honor to do that. I'm a kid that came to America. It's what my book's about. When I was early 20s, I'd never seen anything like ice hockey. It was like watching the Premier League, the football, but like with a speed turned up to 11. It was insane. And I adored it. Um, so to be able to speak to Ovi and talk to him about his life or to Austin Matthews of the Maple Leafs um, or you know, Victor Hedman of the uh, of the back-to-back champion uh, Tampa Bay Lightning is to really, it's just to learn lessons about life. And I hope, I think those films that we made with the players, they're, they're aching to talk about it too. They don't, you know, they don't just want to talk about, yeah, we've got to hit harder with the blue line and really, yeah, we've got to, ultimately it's down to what's got to move the ball the puck faster from the power play. They, they talk about that because they're asked about that. But um, really, they want to talk about fear, about hope, about defeat, about lessons learned in failure. And so that's the small contribution that, that I think we can make. Is there one player, because you've gotten, as you had mentioned, to chat with so many of the most impressive players in the league. Is there one player that really impressed you? And I don't know if impressed is the right word, but really touched you in a unique way where you were able to really get inside their mind and their heart. Um, well, I can't say whether I got inside their mind and their heart. You'd have to ask them. Um, they could be just like, oh, that bald English bastard. God, he was annoying. Um, but I can tell you what moved me and what really did numbers uh, for our audience. There's the Tampa Bay Lightning coach, John Cooper, is a remarkable human being. He's won back-to-back Stanley Cups. He's a fantastic guy. He was 30 years of age. He was a lawyer. Um, I mean, all of us have been there in a career that we didn't know if we liked at all and uh, it wasn't that fun. And you're looking down, I've got kids, you know, I'm kind of stuck and kind of trapped. And he started to coach high school hockey and just felt alive. And at the age of 30, he realized, you know what, I don't want to do my job anymore that I've dedicated my life to. I want to be a coach at the mid, mid age. He made a complete transition. And his story of just arriving in the lowest rung of hockey as a guy that didn't play professionally and had no respect, but brought his innovative ideas and his joy and his ability to build a culture in a locker room and and think differently to others uh, tactically. And he just moved from one tiny team to the other way. He's like setting up ice in a barn that he shared with a rodeo and setting up himself and driving the, you know, just like crazy, hilarious Disney movie style. We're going to win this crappy little league that no one cares about. And he's moved himself up every level and everyone 
you know, always with imposter syndrome. And now he's won back-to-back um, Stanley Cups. I find his career, his life, his approach to life so deeply bloody motivating. And also on that team, Pat Maroon, who's won, won now back-to-back-to-back championships. He was at the, uh, in St. Louis then to, to me, he's like the arc of the covenant where whoever, whichever team fields him is guaranteed Stanley Cup victory. He was a dude who, big guy, just enjoyed himself, had a laugh, learned to play roller hockey. Big guy, they called him Fat Pat when he was a kid, which probably didn't go down well. And he found joy in hockey, um, but, you know, didn't really apply himself. It came too easy and got cut early um, and was on the couch living in New Jersey um in playing with a college like pub team and was out with the game he had a kid and he was he was like the game he always wanted to play and he had the opportunity to play he'd kind of like been hung over at training sessions and didn't turn up and the kid they're like you're not serious f off you're not for you're not your mentality is wrong and on that couch in new jersey he could have either just become a casualty there's millions in sports of people who thought they were going all the way and crapped out early and it, having a kid he's like i can't F this up for my kid. He fought himself back in, went to the lowest rung again, forced his way through, started to play quite well as a big guy that could put himself about, make other people look great. And ultimately, the thing I love about sports and all the stories I love is about tenacity, human tenacity. And he is tenacity and bodies. He's not just got himself back into the big leagues. Um, I mean, his story is beautiful. He's an incredible human being. And when you hear it, somebody lay themselves out when you hear a big man cry um, about their low points and then overcome them in that way. That's where to me, sports cannot feel better than tenacity in the face of despair and defeat, dragging yourself off. It's the Rocky story, man, but for the NHL. Let's talk about men in blazers. What's the moment, the exact moment where you knew you had something where this had become something. Speaking to you today, Arthur, is um is that i'm gonna click off and be like man this is it Throw fourth bible. time i've fourth time i've heard that today fourth time bro bible is double b <laughs> we're in it um i mean it's it's an ongoing process you know it's like there's never i'm someone that is never like i never set back and go wow we're amazing so i just don't think about life like that i think about what i've not done i think about what i want to do Think about what's going wrong. Think about that a lot, Arthur. I like to focus. It's quite funny when when the book went to number one. I'm immediately like, "Why are we not doing this? Why are we not doing that? Like, that's what what is annoying me." And I'm just like, and my wife's like, "Can you not just like take a minute and enjoy this moment?" I'm like, "It's really annoying me. Like, this thing is really annoying me." And so I approach life um, <laughs> with a cup always half empty. And um, and that's that's it. So I don't like to think about things like that, to be honest. Dude, I'm the exact same way. I call it the insatiable hunger. I'm never satisfied. And I have people from my partners to randoms who are like, dude, can't you just enjoy the moment? And I'm like, mentally already three, 10, 20 steps ahead. Like, what's next? What's next? But it's hard. It's hard not to smell the roses sometimes. You know, I, I will say I do. And I talk about this a lot. I do think life is about working bloody hard, filling every minute, making meaning in your own way, being passionate about what you do. And I talk a lot about this on the show, about making memories while you can take nothing for granted. It's why I love sports constantly. We're all making memories together, collective memories. But at the same time, even talking to you, I realize I'm also kind of like immediately like, yeah, what didn't I like? What, what do I need to change? What do I need to work harder on? So it's a, there's a thing in my book 
that uh, I was very close to my grandfather growing up and um, and he had 12 brothers and a sister and they all fell out over a period of years, um, which was very common back then. And so he didn't speak to any of them. And I remember there's a kid, I said to him, we went to one of their funerals. He'd not spoken to him for 30 years and went to his funeral. I was about eight or nine. And we drove back and my grandfather was crying as we drove back. And I said, why are you crying? He said, very sad, very sad, Charlie's dead. And um, I was like, are you, are you sad that you didn't speak to Charlie for all those years? Uh, he said, um, don't know. And I said, why did you not speak to Charlie? He goes, can't remember. Don't remember why we fell out. And I said, so do you regret the whole thing? Do you regret the whole thing? Um, and he said, no, Roger. He said, always hate, but hate with reason. Just make sure you write that reason down. And that's it. It's like, um, that's my, I, I, I thought my approach to life was about making meaning and savoring everything and not taking it for granted. But talking to you, it's clear that I'm immediately focusing on the negative. And as long as I make sure I write them down, that's pretty well, that's pretty well how I, uh, how I wrote. I love your solution. Be an asshole, but know why you're being an asshole. I mean, you're really being an asshole to yourself, to be honest, because it's really just you that you are uh, denying, um, that piece but it is the, the the notion of making it it's just um when you work hard and also um like a lot of our joy is about an interaction with an audience so it's a we have a deeply emotionally engaged audience um i mean it's part of the reason the book has been so successful is my audience know i've worked really hard on the book and it's very important to me and the story is very important to me and so they've received it and work joyfully to um to support it which is deeply meaningful when you have that you always work you never take that for granted you always have to work super hard and um, so I'm more focused on that I focus really like um, horizontally on my audience and the interaction with the audience rather than like oh look look what we've achieved isn't it amazing I think like that hopefully um, you you do I guess when we all end up down playing golf in Florida Arthur I love your set, by the way. I've always wondered, as many times as I've seen it, what's your favorite item in the back? What's the most the most memorable one? Except the book, your best-selling book over your right ear now, which well, nice nice placement with that, by the I, way. I, I didn't see it there. What's that doing there? The um, I mean, I, God, that's like a bit of a Sophie's choice. It is um, possibly a little overgrown at the moment, but. Every, I mean, everything. Those are my, my grandfather, who I just mentioned. Those are his war medals from Africa. Um, I've got my, uh, I've got my, this is one of my favorites here. This, I've not seen this in a while. This is my royal wedding mug um, with, um, with, what's her name? But they got the wrong royal on this one. They got marrying the wrong, uh, they got Harry marrying what's her name? Wait, is that Kate Middleton? Yeah, that's Kate. They made that. I found this, but I had to cover the royal wedding for MSNBC. And um, and I just found this in like a cheap tchotchke shop. And I recognized that they had the wrong brother, Marianne. And I just love this. It gives me no end of pleasure. I like to, <laughs> I, I, there should be a movie made about this mug. Only um, fucking England, dude. Only England. Yeah, the only queen I believe in is Tracy Chapman anyway, Arthur, to, to be candid. So um, so that's it. But your own set's not so bad. I, I do admire, I like the archaeological thing, bolt. What, what if I was like, you know what? That's worth a million dollars right behind Man, me. I'd be like, bro, Bible. Dude, amazing. You'd be like, you'd be like where do I sign up? Where do I pitch Men in Blazers? Where do I pitch uh, Men in Blazers on Bro Bible? No wonder you only gave off of the finger to HBO. You really don't need the work. <laughs>
Yeah, fuck that, dude. Are you kidding me? <laughs> waffle House. So I was, I love your fucking sweater, but then I noticed you have a little Waffle House thing behind you. What is this Waffle House significance? Oh, I love Waffle House, man. It's, um, it's just, I do, I love being in America. I mean, that's why I wrote the book is just, um, like for me to be in America, a kid that grew up um, dreaming about America, who by and large, um, who, who I am was defined by like watching Miami Vice, John Hughes movies, the Chicago Bears, Super Bowl winning team, um, uh, you know, Run DMC, Public Enemy, KRS One, Tracy Chapman. All of them show me different ways to engage in the world. And I found it all fascinating. So I, I dreamt of America. I grew up in Liverpool in the 1980s. It was a magical city at a really dark time where just the whole of the North, the industrial North was just destroyed uh, by Margaret Thatcher. And, uh, you know, the coal pits closed and the steel mills shut down. And if you've seen Billy Elliot, then you kind of know the picture. But he had ballet dancing and I didn't. So like I filled myself up with just, just imbibing American culture. And I painted on my bedroom wall, the Statue of Liberty and, um, and the Manhattan skyline, like a crude childish imagination of what those things were. And I now live here. Um, so I never take it for granted. I'm deeply, deeply humbled to, to have made it. And, um, and I love traveling around this country. I love going to Nashville. I love going to Charlottesville. I love all the villes, you know, to get off the plane and go to Prince's Hot Chicken and get extra, extra, extra hot wings and just, oh, to go to roll into Minneapolis, Minnesota and go to Matt's Bar and get a Juicy Lucy. What an incredible invention that is. Why did that not catch on more? Um, and just, you know, go to Chicago and imbibe a Pequod's pizza in which the whole of life is somehow the meaning of life is buried between the deep dish crust and the surface it's just amazing and so um waffle house i, I just I, I i believe ultimately and it goes back to your other question about whether um like life is amazing I, I do believe like pleasure should be found in the most simple places and i've had so many incredible nights in my life that have ended in a waffle house and i'm so bloody grateful to all the staff who work so hard there and keeping that institution open even in hurricanes and all that crap that they talk about and so during covid when we've been locked down i have tried to like uh, surround myself with things from america that bring me real joy and i have deep deep memories of of wonder and I can't think of a place more than a Waffle House across this nation that all great evenings end at about 5 a.m. in a Waffle House, don't they, Arthur? As soon as we're off this Zoom, I'm contacting the director of marketing at Waffle House. I'm finding his information. I'm putting together a sponsorship deal, but I do want a commission on this. By the way, Waffle House have zero dollars. That's their genius. They have zero dollars budget because they were super psyched that I had it up. I had a chat with their CMO. I, I ended up recording a video for their staff during COVID to just be like, thank you, staff. You are the fucking greatest. You really are. You worked so effing hard and I can't believe it. Um, I do. I gen my love for Waffle House is genuine and true and deep and oh, America. Yeah, and they're like, sorry, our budget, our budget isn't there. So thank, thanks so much, Raj. No money. Mate, <laughs> it's like some things in life smothered and covered. It's just one of the great simple pleasures, the great simple joys, and uh, it is. It's like oh, America. Pelly, Messi, or Maradona. Is this fuck, fight, kill? 
No, greatest of all time. But oh, oh, sorry. So give me them again. So I was trying to work out which Pelé? one. I, I would have married Messi, probably. I would. I think I would have married Maradona because the fucking month <laughs> that he didn't, the month that he wasn't on blow was probably amazing. But then you, then the the next month of being on blow and partying, but then it's like all over. It's um, God, that would be that would be a dark night in hell. You get a good documentary <laughs> film deal out of it, like. Meanwhile, Pele is like Jesus Christ. I was watching that documentary and he's like legit the most beloved dude on the planet. And you're just like, he's like a saint. He takes pictures with everybody. I'd be like, guys, enough. And meanwhile, he's like one by one. So Pele, Pele, in terms of timing, he fused his peak with just uh, the uh, television becoming a global distribution network. So he became the world's first global billboard as a walking human being. That was just, I mean, he was a great footballer. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, uh, Messi is, Messi is just, um, it's just truly in a crowd. I have Messi's jersey down in my, uh, um, framed in my house. I don't have anybody else's, but I think I am looking as we speak at, uh, Diego Maradona, a signed photo of him. My one of my worst childhood moments, which was against England, my heroes then in 1986 in the World Cup, where he leapt over a much taller goalkeeper, the hand of God, and punched it into the net. Just a searing injustice. And then minutes later, picked up the ball and ran through the whole England team. Like he, one goal was scored with the deviousness of the master thief Thomas Crown. The next goal was just scored with just the sublime, like Picasso esque uh, unbelievable avant-garde skill that you could only marvel at and over time I, I, I was a kid when he did that and I went outside and just smacked drove a soccer ball right through my own lounge window and my dad was just like I understand your pain I understand uh, it was searing but with time with age you come to appreciate the genius of his impudent cheek and so to answer your question, ultimately, I guess I'm, he's the one. He's the one that I have up in my office. Um, and so I'd, I'd probably go, for me, he, Messi's a better footballer. But Diego Maradona is a human being. All of life is captured in that genius and that human darkness. And that's my, my mate Asif Kapadia made a film that's on HBO about his time, his career. It's, it's, it's an incredible piece of human theatre. And so Maradona, Maradona, Maradona. Listen, anybody who could party all night, get chased by the mafia, and then go win World Cups, that dude's a star. That's that's just, he mixed genres, let's just say. He mixed genres. But he did, in the movie, Asif's movie, um, he genuinely went off his head on just a, just a, it was just, it was just cokey, 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 like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I, might, I hope I get these days right. Friday was was detox Saturday was sweated out and then Sunday was play a game of football win the game of football and then go again and that was his human drama I mean just just wow Roger this has been an absolute pleasure congrats on the book it's called reborn in the USA hopefully you'll be able to have the type of money I have with my artifacts behind my million dollar artifacts <laughs> hopefully this book brings you one step closer to being my wealth level no oh, mate you know we all we all um we all aspire to that but you know when you're at your wealth level all you do you you're someone who focuses on what you don't have you just always look up at the end of the day 
Until, I'm in the, I'm in until, the moment with you because I have my handlers paying all my bills and making my food and everything else. Until, so I can be in the moment with you with no worries in the world. Until your Bezos, Arthur, you, you won't be pleased if you Right, we're all, we're all losers till we're Jeff Bezos. Dude, this, um, has, been, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so gorgeous, much, Roger. You're a gorgeous human being. Thanks to you and your team. Wish you all Thank, courage. Same, brother. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks, fella. Stay cool. All right, folks, that was, of course, Roger Bennett. If that guy doesn't turn you on to soccer, nobody will. Just brilliant, brilliant personality. So funny, so off the cuff. And that's probably the reason why, Roger, you're going to have to give me royalties off this. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. The new book is called Reborn in the USA. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous showcase of Roger's personality, but in written form. All right, folks, that is it for another episode of Bro Bobble's Endless Hustle. Man, what a week of interviews. Doesn't get any better than this week. Oh, wait, it does. We have another fabulous week next week. Another two triple headers ahead. Is that even like proper English? Two triple headers, double triple header ahead. Whatever it is, we got six guests next week in our two episodes and amazing ones. I'm not spoiling the surprises yet, but we got a loaded week next week. As always, folks, subscribe, rate, follow, show us the love, catch us on social media. Endless Hustle on Twitter is at endless double underscore hustle. On Instagram, at endless hustle pod. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. We're going to be back next week with another banger two episodes. Enjoy your weekend, stay safe, and keep endlessly hustling. See you all then. Bye.